you'd like, you can turn open your Bibles to Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. I've asked Michael to read that for us this morning, but first I'd like, you to, give, I'd like to give you a little bit of an introduction to my message before he comes and reads that, so you have some context. As I said, today is Reformation Day Sunday, and in two days, Tuesday, October 31st, it will be exactly 500 years since the start of the Protestant Reformation, as most historians would mark it. From that date, a monk by the name of Martin Luther posted what would come to be known as the 95 Theses on the Door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. And these theses are theological points that Luther had posted, challenged the established church and their teaching on salvation that eventually led Luther and others like him to rediscover the true gospel that had been hidden for so long, that justification, the making of one's heart right before God, comes by faith and faith alone. Originally, these theses were written as a response to the church's teaching concerning indulgences, the practice of selling slips of paper that guaranteed the purchaser the forgiveness of their own sins, or maybe of the sins of another one, maybe somebody who was living or deceased, And when Luther heard that this was being taught, that salvation could be purchased with money, he immediately took a stand and wrote this influential document. Luther's intention was never to split the church, only to reform it, hence Protestant Reformation. But once it became clear to him that the church would not reform, and he was forced to choose between the word of God and the word of the Pope, he chose the word of God. And in this famous trial in the town of Worms, Germany, this was when Luther was asked if he would take back everything that he had written. And he had said in these words, let me grab my remote here so that you can see these words up on the screen. I have them printed for you. This is what he said when he was standing trial for what he had taught. He said, Since your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer without horns and without teeth. And that's an expression that's lost on us. He's just basically saying, I'll get straight to the point. Unless I'm convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor nor safe. Here I stand, I can do, cannot do otherwise, so God help me. Amen. And it's from that point forward that Martin Luther made it clear that Scripture would be his sole authority for faith and doctrine. And so, as we think about the Reformation, we've got five solas, five only statements that represent what this movement was about. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Sola Fide, faith alone. Sola Gratia, Grace alone, solus Christus, which means Christ alone, and soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. Our source of authority is found in Scripture alone, and that's important for us because before that time, the Bible was read in Latin to people who wouldn't be able to understand what was being read. It was reserved only for the priests and the clergy, and Luther changed all that, and he started a movement that would drastically cha- change history from ever, forever afterwards. This morning, as I was trying to think about how we can best remember the legacy of the Protestant Reformation, 
I was trying to think of what the best way might be to do that. Here's one idea, maybe not the best way for us to. This is a satirical site, the Babylon Bee. I don't know if you read that. It says, wife of Protestant asked him to please stop nailing grocery lists to the front door. Maybe that's not the best way to celebrate the Protestant Reformation. I like the way the article says it later on. Again, this is entirely fake. But it says inside the article, reminding him that it was the third time he's done it, the wife of local Protestant Steve Carey asked him Tuesday to please stop nailing the grocery list on the front door of their home. Seriously, babe, why can't you just stick it on the fridge with a magnet like a normal person? It's damaging the door. Front doors are really expensive, she added. It's not like it's some important document. It's a grocery list. You're not Martin Luther, dear. Still, Carrie refused to budge. Here I stand, came his reply. Okay. Of course, that's purely fake. Not real at all. But maybe that's not the best way for us to remember it. I thought perhaps a better way for us to remember the Protestant Reformation is to study it and the doctrines that it taught as found in Scripture. Because that's its great gift to us, that we can open the Bible together and study it in our own language and understand what it says. And I want to talk about this idea of justification by faith alone. It's something that's found in the passage we already read, Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's also found in Galatians 2.15 and 16. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And then finally, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. That faith is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. So today I'd like to look at this principle from Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 40. We often think of justification by faith as being a Pauline idea, something coming from the Apostle Paul. But I want to show you that it's not just Paul's idea. It's taught throughout the Scriptures, and it's taught specifically here in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Please turn there if you haven't already. I'll be reading from the Word of God, the book of Luke, chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered, Answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, 
Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with, her, with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Thank you, Mike. So if we've read that passage, hopefully now that's given you a framework through which to think about it as we've already introduced our subject. And this is the story before us, so let's take some time to expound on what it has to teach us this morning. Let's start with the setting, verses 36 through 38. Jesus is invited to have dinner with a Pharisee. We're not told precisely when this incident occurred or where, The principal characters here are apparent to us. We have Jesus, we have this Pharisee who is named Simon, and we have a woman whose name is not given. All that we know is that she had a sinful history. That will become apparent to us later on in the passage. But Jesus is invited to the home of Simon the Pharisee, and at the time it was considered virtuous to invite a teacher over to dinner, especially if that teacher taught in the synagogue or was from out of town. So, the text says that they are reclining at a table, which is a different way of eating than we are normally accustomed to. And while we might not normally uh, recline in this way, uh, it might be more difficult for us to picture because we often picture people sitting at chairs. And oftentimes, if you see a picture of the Last Supper, you see Jesus sitting in a chair and everybody else is sitting at this regular height table that we're used to. What I want to show you is that actually the way they did things back then, especially in terms of a banquet, looked more like this. So when we say they're reclining at table, this is more of what it would have looked like. And you can see how if the woman would have come from behind where Jesus is at his feet, this is how she would have had access to his feet if they were all reclining this way. Also, it makes more sense when we think about the Last Supper and when it talks about the disciple that Jesus loved was reclining next to him, almost in his bosom. You can see how if you're leaning a certain way, you're you're closer to somebody reclining next to them. It was just a a, a standard practice at this particular period of history. So we have the setting. Now we have an unexpected guest, the actions of an unnamed woman. We have this woman who's going to enter the scene who wasn't invited. We don't know her name. It's nobody that Simon knew. And the text simply tells us that she was a sinner, verse 37. That she would have not felt worthy to be in the presence of Jesus, and she certainly wouldn't have felt worthy to invite Jesus over to her own house. It would have been especially looked down upon uh, because of her sinful life if she would have invited Jesus over. And it's even looked down upon her here with her just walking in the door and coming over to Jesus in the way that she does. We don't know why she's called a sinner. We don't know what her background is. It's possible she was a prostitute. We don't know. 
But if that were the case, she definitely wouldn't have felt worthy of being in the house at all for those reasons. And we see that because she was never going to be invited by anyone, the only way that she was going to see Jesus is if she took action upon herself to be there. This woman apparently heard that Jesus was coming over to Simon's house, and that's how she came to be there. She was eager to be there, and it almost seems like she was the first there before Jesus even arrived. So we look at Luke seven forty-five, and it says, You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You can almost imagine she arrived at the same time, or maybe even a little bit before, the guest of honor arrived. That was Jesus. Now you might wonder, how is it that Simon allowed her to come in? For if you and I, to, you know, if we were to host some family over at our house, you wouldn't expect a random stranger just to walk right in and start washing somebody's feet. How would he have allowed this? Well, at the time, religious people would sometimes allow the door to remain open, especially even at banquets, as a show of goodwill to the poor. But those who walked in were usually expected to remain quiet and away from all the couches where they were reclining and just observe the discussion of the hosts and guests, not really be too much involved in what was going on. So now that's how the woman got in, but we can see what she does is not in keeping with the practices and the cultural norms of the day. So we look here in Luke seven thirty-seven and 38. It says, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. So instead of keeping her distance, she dares to get very close to Jesus. And here's one artist rendering, again, from that position where they would have been placed at the table of how this woman would have come in and sat down, or even stood by Jesus' feet. This likely would have alarmed and annoyed Simon the host, and further, she begins to weep, to such a degree that her tears start to fall on Jesus' feet, and she proceeds to wipe them off with her hair, while also pouring perfume on them as well. Now, washing the feet of a guest wasn't an uncommon thing. We see this instant of foot washing happening even at the Last Supper. But the difference here is that that foot washing would normally be per- uh, accomplished by uh, one of the guests of the house, And it wasn't necessarily required of the host to do this for their guests, but it was a way of showing honor to a very distinguished guest if they wanted to go that far. So Simon was under no obligation to do this, but if he was really desiring to show Jesus the highest amount of honor, it's something he would have taken care of. But yet we see it's nothing that he has arranged. He doesn't have anybody else set up for this task. And it's not just that this woman beats the the servant to the punch, it's just that nobody else is doing it. And she takes it upon herself to wash Jesus' feet. And though she has no bowl or no towel, as a servant might have had, her tears provide the water, and her hair is what dries his feet. Could be that she didn't have these things to spare. Could be that she raced over to such a degree that she didn't think to bring them along. Could be that she didn't feel comfortable asking the master of the house for these items. But that didn't stop her. In either case, she used the materials she had available to her. And the text tells us she kissed Jesus' feet. That's significant, because in this culture, a kiss on the cheek was used as a greeting. 
Men would even kiss other men on the cheek as a, as a friendly greeting, welcoming them into a certain place or when they were meeting up together. And you might remember, this is how uh, Judas actually betrayed Jesus. He greeted Jesus with this friendly kiss, which actually wasn't friendly at all. It was the way of signaling to the Roman officers who Jesus was. But again, this kiss was something that was common in Jewish culture. Going back to the woman, this woman would not have been permitted to greet Jesus with a kiss. So she did the only thing that she could think to do, that was kiss his feet. However, we see that she has no basin. Instead, she's washing Jesus' feet with her tears, and she's not permitted to kiss Jesus' cheek like the Pharisee would have done, so the best she can do is kiss his feet. She uses tears. She has no towel. She uses her hair instead to dry them. And finally, she uses this bottle of expensive ointment to anoint Jesus' feet. There's something significant happening behind the scenes here, something that's prompting this woman to do all of these things. So all we see at this point is her actions. It's almost as if we're being told the story from the perspective of Simon. We can see what this woman's doing. It seems very out of the ordinary, very intrusive, and we just see her actions. But what I want you to see is underneath all of that, what's prompting her to do these various actions? She's coming to Jesus, I would say, with a contrite heart. That's something that's not described on the surface, but I think what is happening behind the scenes. And further, I think we could go even beyond that and say that what she is doing is exercising her faith, her faith in Jesus. She believes that Jesus can grant her the forgiveness that she seeks. Obviously, we already know that she is a sinful woman, and whatever she's doing, she's coming in with a broken heart. She's coming there truly with a contrite spirit, desiring to be forgiven of what she's done, repentant before Jesus' feet. And you know, she's coming to Jesus. She's not coming to another priest in the village. She's not going to any other religious authority. There's something significant about the fact that she's coming to him, which I think reveals that she has faith that he is who he says he is. She needs forgiveness, and she knows the person to go to for that very need. So, once you understand that, you recognize that what we have here is really faith being expressed in action. And you can see a number of things that she's demonstrating. She demonstrates devotion to Jesus in arriving at the banquet early. You could observe that she's demonstrating servanthood because she was the first to wash Jesus' feet, or maybe you could say the only one. Her faith produced courage since it would have taken a lot of guts to walk into a stranger's house and approach Jesus in this way. You could say that she demonstrated insight because she understood that Jesus was no ordinary person. She had the insight to understand that he was worthy of being anointed with oil, like a king or a priest or a prophet, if you think of the Old Testament. And finally, she demonstrated that she loved Jesus above all other things since she was willing to use this expensive ointment on Jesus' feet, even though she probably wasn't wealthy. So that's how she responds. What do we see in contrast to that? So we're first given her reaction to Jesus being there, now we're going to see the Pharisees' reaction to what she has just done. And it's meant to stand in contrast to one another for sure. So let's look to Luke 7.39, where it says, When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who was touching him. For she is a sinner. 
And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. So here, Jesus proceeds to tell a parable. And he says, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will he love more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Okay, I want to stop right there in the story, because here is where we see Simon's thoughts coming out. We can see his opinion of what this woman has done and how he views her, and Jesus is going to reveal that in an even greater way. It says, now when the Pharisee who was invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who was touching him, since she is a sinner. Notice by all outward appearances, Simon has invited Jesus to his house to honor him. And yet here, we can see he really doesn't believe in Jesus at all. In fact, Simon's thoughts are similar to a question that was asked of Jesus earlier by other Pharisees. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners, is what they've said in Luke 5 and Matthew 9. That's similar to what Simon is thinking here. He's saying, why is Jesus doing this, he wonders. Now, the ironic thing is, as you look at this verse that's up on the screen, he's actually right. If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. He's not wrong. He actually is spot on with how Jesus can see things and the insight that he possesses. It's just that Simon is interpreting these facts in an entirely different way. And he doesn't understand the way that Jesus truly views this woman. The truth is that he doesn't really know who this woman is and her heart's desire. He doesn't understand her heart. He doesn't understand who Jesus is. He doesn't understand the true heart that God accepts. He doesn't understand the concept of mercy. So Jesus then challenges Simon's false way of thinking using this parable, the parable of the two debtors. And Jesus answering him said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Now, notice that while Jesus just read this man's unbelieving thoughts, he continues to put up appearances as if he really does believe in Jesus. He says, say it, teacher, as if to give him some sort of outward appearance of honor. But inwardly, we can tell he's thinking, if this man really was a prophet he would know what kind of woman this is. He doesn't believe. But on the surface, he's making all appearances of it. And you know, doesn't that say something about the human heart and the way we can often pass ourselves off as being very religious people? There are people in this world who will love to talk about their faith and say about how much they do in the church or in the world or whatever and be very, very good at convincing others that they are the most devoted person in the room. And you know what? Maybe we might be fooled by it if we didn't have these revealing thoughts spelled out for us in Scripture. Would we have known what this man's true actions and his thoughts were? We might not. Might not. But Jesus can see right through it. So here is where we come back to this parable. A certain moneylender had two debtors. Let's read this again. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. And now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. 
So whereas Simon has not judged rightly with this woman that he has just seen enter his house, he has judged rightly at least with this basic question. So the parable explained. Jesus is now going to tell the significance of what he was just explained to this man. It's a short parable. Because if you look up all the different parables of Jesus, you'll see some are very long and extended. Like, for example, uh, you could think of the parable of the sower, where he, Jesus tells that in two parts. He tells the, the story of the sower and then later on tells its interpretation. And others are just simply statements, like the mustard seed. So when we talk about parables, we can talk about things of varying lengths. Sometimes they're just a, a statement, and other times they're a very detailed story. This is one of the smaller ones. But the, the two men here in this story owe money to a lender, and the idea is very basic. One owes about two months' wage, while the other owes the equivalent of about 20 months' wage. Both debts are forgiven by the lender, and the point that Jesus leads Simon to, this is the stated point of the parable, is that a person who has had a greater debt forgiven will love the money lender more than the one who has forgiven little. Okay. That's fairly obvious. But the real question of this parable is, what does that mean? What does that mean? It's easy enough to answer like Simon does. Okay, yes. But what is he trying to get across by this? It's easy to see on the surface level, because Jesus states it plainly, but it's a little more difficult to understand how Jesus intends us to use this parable in the case of the Pharisee and the woman. Here's what I mean. Okay, if we just think about this point, is Jesus implying that Simon only had a little bit to be forgiven of, since he loves a little. But the woman was much, much worse, and therefore was forgiven more, since she loves Jesus more, or so she loves Jesus more. I don't, I don't think so. I, that would imply that Jesus agrees with Simon's assumption that he has less to be forgiven of. I don't think Jesus is intending to do that. So the interpretation of this parable is not, Simon has less to be forgiven of, so he loves little, she has more to be forgiven of, so she loves more. No, that's not it. And that's the beauty of Jesus' parables. They require more thought than, than that. Rather, what I think Jesus is doing here is making an argument from Simon's point of view. Simon thinks the woman is somebody who is in the greater debt. That her sins are much more numerous than his own. She's a sinner. Maybe she's even a prostitute. We don't know. But she's led a sinful lifestyle, Simon thinks. And so she must be piled up with this enormous pile of sins in her life, and mine are far fewer. So Jesus is speaking this parable as if told, or in the mind of Simon. By contrast, Simon feels that he only has a few sins to be forgiven of, and so Simon doesn't really feel a big need to be loved by Jesus, or even to be forgiven at all. The implication is that Simon really doesn't love God much at all. So here's the deeper point of the parable. Okay, I just showed you the stated point, the obvious one. Here's what I think Jesus is getting at. Recognizing the debt that we owe before God is a prerequisite to our love of God. Let me say that again. Recognizing the debt that we owe before God is a prerequisite. It must come first before we can love God. And that first part is what the Pharisee is lacking here. And this is actually a description of how salvation really works. 
Notice the order of events that Jesus describes in verses 42 and uh, 43. I don't have these up on the screen for you. You'll have to look down. 42 and 43. The cancellation of the debt precedes. That means it comes before our love for God. Not the other way around. It's not that we love God first, and that's why he forgives us. No, our love for God only occurs once he has acted on our behalf. What then does it mean in verse 47 when Jesus says this? This is a little tricky. He says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. That can sound confusing based on what we've just said, because it sounds like Jesus is saying, this woman was forgiven for or because she loved me much. It almost sounds like he's saying that she's saved by her works. That she loved me, therefore I forgave her. That's actually not what it's saying at all. And the key to this verse, and I want you to focus on it up on here on the screen, is how we understand this word for. When it says, her sins which are many were forgiven, for she loved much, for doesn't mean because she loved much. Okay? For doesn't mean because as if to imply she was forgiven because she loved much. Rather, for in Luke 7, 47 means her sins, which are many, were forgiven for, in other words, as evidenced by the fact that she loved much. In other words, her faith came first, which led to her forgiveness, which then produced love in her heart. You see how you could take that word for for two different ways. Okay? Not for in the sense of because, but for as in the reason I know that this is true The reason you can tell that she is forgiven is because of the result it produced. It produced this love. For the evidence here is that she loved me, therefore I know that she has been forgiven of much. Like the person who owed a massive debt, it's apparent that this woman has been forgiven as evidenced by the fact that she showed such signs of love toward me. Jesus continues by essentially saying to Simon, think about it. You didn't wash my feet. You didn't greet me with a kiss or anoint my head like a host might have done. You have done none of that. And I've already said that he was never technically required to do any of those things for him. But if he truly wanted to show honor to Jesus as the teacher that he was, he could have done any of those things. And that's Jesus' point. You could have greeted me with a kiss. You could have washed my feet. You could have done all these different things. And yet you've done none of them. And yet this woman, even though she risked scorn by everyone in this room, and even though she had none of the proper materials, she did all of these things and more. Her love for me serves as proof that she understood the massive debt that she owes due to her sin, her need to be forgiven, and her faith that I am the one that can grant it to her. And so this is where we build up to the key verse out of the entire passage. Verse 50. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. See, Jesus can understand the intentions and the thoughts of our hearts. He doesn't just look at the outward actions of what this woman is doing. He sees them, yes, and he recognizes them for what they are. But he says, you know what? The thing that prompted her to do all of these things was this faith that existed in her heart before she ever did them. So here's the question. What's the application 
for this passage? Well, Jesus did not say, your love has saved you, your decision to wash my feet has saved you, or your other acts of devotion have saved you. Rather, we see it's her faith that saved her, and faith alone. And that order of things is crucial, especially as we think about the theme of this particular morning and what it is we're celebrating. And this is reiterated time and time again in the Scriptures. I like the way Daryl Bach says it in the NIV application commentary. I have his quote up on the screen. It says, Jesus' remarks reveal a crucial theological sequence. First, an offer of forgiveness from God, and then the faith that saves. Such faith evidences itself in the acts of love that she has performed for Jesus. That's incredible news to us. And it's a truth that we celebrate the Reformers for discovering anew and proclaiming from the Scriptures that we are justified by faith alone. We are made right in God's sight by faith alone. And we are forgiven through God's grace by means of faith alone. And this, to me, isn't just some dry doctrine that we talk about on the pages of Scripture or in classrooms. It's something that's very personal to me because it's that gospel by which I was saved and by which we are all saved. But I can remember it very clearly because it was when I was 18 years old and I had been going to church all of my life, doing all the extra things too, being in the choir and being an acolyte and doing all these things in the context of the church. And when I finally was forced to have a conversation about what it was that I believed and why, it came out that the real reason I thought I was going to heaven was because I was a religious person. I had been doing all these things to earn favor in God's eyes. And I remember saying to Sarah, you know, I don't think God is going to reject me because of all these different things I've done in my life. I wasn't trusting in faith alone through Jesus Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection alone. It was ultimately up to me. And it took several hard conversations, which I'm glad for, and several different ways of people working in my life. Uh, My old pastor who showed me a a Billy Graham track that explained the gospel very clearly and gave me the Jesus video, and Pastor Reed when I first met him and were having conversations with he and Sarah, and different things like that all coming together to show me that my way would never be good enough. And I'll remember it as vividly as ever that there was a picture on this track that was given to me of two cliffs, one with man on one side, and God on the other. And a bunch of small bridges that didn't quite make it all the way over. And one said, good works. And the other said, religiosity and going to church and all these different things. And it was when I saw that picture, after somebody had you know, shared these scriptures with me, but it was when I saw that picture that I understood none of them could get me to the other side. And the picture that followed on the next page of this tract was a giant cross that came out down between the two... Uh, pieces of rock that enabled people to walk across, and that was Jesus Christ, his death on the cross. It's only through faith that we are justified, and nothing else. And Martin Luther realized that when he declared that indulgences, pieces of paper, can't be purchased to forgive your sins, and you can't go to church enough, and you can't do enough good deeds to be able to be perfect as God has commanded us to be perfect, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. None of that can ever measure up. It's only by trusting in Christ's work alone. Here's the truth. You can never be religious enough. Doesn't matter how many years you've been attending church. 
doesn't matter how many thousands of dollars you give to charity or how many orphanages you build or good deeds that you do. You can only be made right in God's eyes through faith alone. Notice how wonderfully the Word of God defines for us what faith looks like here in Luke 7. When we say that a person is justified by faith alone, faith doesn't mean simply agreeing to a set of statements in your head or praying a prayer and then stopping at that. Now, it certainly does include that. You have to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, right? That's in the Bible. But it's not just a mental assent. And we can see what that faith looks like here in the life of this woman. That faith produced action. She was a changed woman. She wasn't just somebody who said, oh, I've, I've prayed a prayer and now I'm saved and I can just go home and live however I want. We can tell that she was truly saved by the fact that she gave everything that she had, her last bit of wealth in this ointment. She was willing to be scorned by other people and looked down upon. She didn't care about the opinions of other, other people in the room. All she cared about was Jesus' opinion. Those things proved that she had true faith and that she was truly saved. And so we learn here that it is faith alone, but it's not a faith that is alone. It's not a faith that is unaccompanied by any change of heart. It's a true faith that transforms us and changes us. And so I ask you here, I know many of us in this room are saved, and for that I am grateful. And I don't know, maybe there are some in this room who might have known the right words to say, or have been coming here because it's something your parents have told you to do for years and years, or you're not even sure why you come anymore, and you're not really sure if that faith that you once professed was genuine at all, I'd ask you to consider where you're putting your trust. Is it the fact that you've been here for a certain number of years? Is it on the basis of your parents' faith? Are you thinking that ultimately I'm good enough to get to heaven? I want to tell you this morning that none of those things are true. And the only way for you to be made right is to confess your sins as this woman did, to place your faith in Jesus Christ alone, and to say, God, save me. I don't want to live this way any longer. I want to follow you. I want to make you my everything, you my all. I want you to be the center and focus of my life. That's true faith. That's the faith that this is talking about. Not an empty faith, but a real and legitimate faith. I pray that all of us in this room would know Jesus Christ in that way. So what about you? Have you come to God in repentance and asked him by faith alone to forgive you on the basis of Christ's death alone on your behalf? This is what John 20 verse 31 says. These things are written. The Gospel of John, but all of the scriptures. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life In his name. Will you believe that today? I pray you will. And if you're interested and you would want to receive Jesus as Savior, please talk to me. Please talk to any of the elders. Anybody here, don't let that question hang over your head any longer. Trust in Jesus Christ today. Let's pray.